Ladies and gents, here we are again, finishing out the Series 2 of Luther. Whoa! Were we ready for this? Were we expecting it? Well, my name's Mose, and I'm joined by my illustrious, illustrious brothers in arms and trying to solve this case and see what, if it made any sense to us, because there was a lot going on. I'm joined by Sean Shibley. I've been using the same lie for 20 years. <laughs> Eric Scott. I rolled a six, so according to my little book here, that means I just say good evening. If I rolled a seven, I have to come hit you with a hammer. Sorry. Oh, too soon. Jason Johnson. Have y'all seen my twin? No. Hmm. Are you ever together at the same time in any one shot? Hmm. And Devin Higgins leading the charge. Oh, Shibley is so hosed. <laughs> <laughs> Devin, take us through this. Well, we have a lot to unpack in this episode and not a whole lot of time to do it, but I'm going to preface this one by saying it's going to be very hard for me to be very impartial as these two episodes, if anybody asks me how to define what Luther is, I point them to these two episodes. These are my favorite ones. So... We're going to break this down as we did with episodes one and two. We're going to start going through A plot, B plot, C plot, and then just kind of wrap it up at the end. So why don't we start there? The A plot opens at a gas station somewhere in London where people going in, getting petrol, buying whatever they need to, and a man walks onto the plot, and things go awry pretty quickly from there. Now... One of the things about this episode that I really liked was it's another Sean Miller or Sam Miller directed episode. So visually, he seems like a guy who's really got the idea of how to make Luther's world both creepy and interesting down. And this is kind of a slow boil of an opening compared to other stuff we've seen in the series. But for me, it was so well done from top to bottom. Let's hit it up there, guys. How did you take how we got the opening to this episode? Um, I have two things straight off the bat. One is I was convinced that I was watching Toby uh, commit these acts. I have no idea why, but for some reason, I think because we had just gotten off seeing Toby, uh, it, it, I, I just it, my mind went to Toby first until. This character, uh, Robert, who we come to find out, uh, actually shows his face. I'm like, okay, this is a totally different guy. Um, but is this the most brutal scene? And if it is, is it because of what we don't see? I, I, I don't know, but it just it felt so raw and visceral. No, dude, the office building by far. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I, I have feelings about these episodes. Um, I will say I think they are beautifully shot. And I love the cinematography. I love the camera motion. I love kind of the uh, long cut sequences. Um, I do feel, I feel that intro was really interesting in that it was very, uh, very tense. And it kind of escalated and escalated. And like had the audience feeling as disjointed and disoriented as those people inside the gas station probably were feeling. 
Yeah, and and with how this all plays out, you know, the one thing that really stands out to me, even more so than the way that, that Sam Miller shot it, is the way that the actor Stephen Robin, Robertson, who plays Robert, performs it. Because if you think about it, how how difficult it has to be as an actor, and and granted, I mean, I've been hung around actors and things like that, but the last time I did anything of, of this sort, I have to go all the way back to, to high school for me. But even then, understanding how difficult it is to play an individual both emotionally cold and without being able to say the word, any word. You know, when he first walks up and he's looking in the gas station and he's walking around, he's checking everything out. And then when he goes back up and he's standing there and puts the brim of his hat near the window and just how absolutely dead his face is. I would think as an actor, that's got to be really difficult to do because that's what you're taught to do. You're taught to emote and you're taught to exude yourself even in moments of psychotic behavior. And he doesn't do that. I mean, that was from the first time I saw this to even rewatching it now, it was so disconcerting for me how effective that was. Did you guys get a, a similar impression like that? Yeah, it was kind of like how just that deadpan, like there's so- something behind his eyes, but there's nothing on his face. It's just that, that look of like, he, he's not psychotic. He's not, you know, from the look on his face, it's just, he's just like just deadpan, like nothing's going on. Yeah, he. I really like the acting. He struck me as like as an old D and D player, like the embodiment of chaotic neutral, like what a real world Joker would have been. Hmm. It's that's interesting. The 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 D and D aspect of it, like the aged out, like how can I make this game uh, more to real life? That 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 structure, and of course, Benny's the one that ends up helping us figure yeah. that part out. Yeah, I mean there are freaking D twenties in it, so it, it's it's begging for that connection. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and that yeah, was and- another aspect of this a plot that that I was really impressed with. I mean, it, it's got its foibles and it's got its holes, sure. But I there were a lot of concepts that were used in this episode in far as far as this all being part of a game, this really sick, twisted sort of game that. I remember watching it this time going, wow, that was really, really cleverly done. It seemed like Neil Cross, for all the flack we give him about what has come before in earlier episodes and earlier seasons, seems really on point with this one. Uh, Jason, you had something? I was just going to go back to the the opening for a little bit and just say that it gave me a very uh, horror movie vibe. You know, you kind of have that same situation where you've got your initial set of characters and uncertainty, and then they're in a safe situation because they managed to lock the doors. Mm-hmm. But then they, they immediately go against that and open the doors and try to confront him, which never works out. So you kind of get, you, you kind of have that pendulum swing of, okay, everybody's safe. Okay. Stupid mistake. We're going to go outside that. I just was flashing back to all your classic horror movie type fronts, especially with the, the use of silence. So, uh, yeah, I said this in the Slack, but, had this been set in America, this would be very much less believable because that guy would have been shot in, like, no time flat. Right. But if you think about it also, the lack of availability of firearms in the UK, when you think about his choice of what he uses in his role in this game, 
You know, well, he's got a bat. He's got a hammer. He's got a squirt gun that's full of acid. I'm going to stop you there because remember, um, he didn't level up enough for a gun. No, and and but they do that touch was on, on the that table later. Yeah, and was it, was this a case of art imitating life or vice versa? I know there's been like acid attacks in London over the last couple of years, so I didn't know when this was written versus when mm. those actual events actually happened. So, this was so, 2011, I want to say. So it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility to to have some yeah. overlap. So, so let me tell you, if there's one truth about humanity, is we are fantastic killers of things, and so. Oh, you blowing know. shit up, that's what we do. Yeah, so we have no dearth of... Give, you know, give us a rock, we'll use it. Whatever we have, we'll use it. We are, just, we are just fantastic killers. But there is a simplicity in that if, you ha- if he had, like, leveled up, say, and just used a gun, it, it would seem to me that's a less intimate and hard, it's... It's easier to, I, I say this, you know, posthumously, it's easier to shoot than it is to be up close, spray somebody with acid and have a reaction, or hit somebody with a bat and have, uh, you know, these, these a, a really, a more, the lack of a better term, an intimate reaction. So It's mundane, I, right? I mean, you've got, you've got you know, some exotic nature to it with the squirt gun full of acid, whereas a, a, a gun, while rare, is still just, you know, it's a mundane killing method. It's, it wouldn't surprise anyone. Yes. So so my reading on this is what makes it so terrifying is the banality in the attacker, right? He's not after the rush of killing someone, even or the perverse thrill or the mm-hmm. intimacy of it, right? He's mm-hmm. after those points, those sweet, sweet points. And, and and something else, <laughs> you guys touched upon it when we did episodes one and two. You know, the ending of that with a potential barbaric crime with what Cameron Pell was doing, that didn't resonate with you guys as much. You know, you guys were all saying, yeah, I, I kind of tuned all that out. This is so in your face with just the rudimentary methods which Robert goes through even in this opening, and as we're going to see later on down the line, that it almost compels you to not turn your head away, and it's so just right up there in in just the brutality of it, you almost can't, you can't take your eyes off it. I will say this is the first time in two seasons of Luther that we've seen that I have been more interested in the A plot than the B plot. Mm. Well, and that's a good point to to mark into the B plot, because we find Jenny where we left her uh, at Luther's flat, although it looks like John has opted to take the couch, and <laughs> Jenny said, okay, well, then I'm taking your room. Um, and it's business as usual. You know, Luther's making breakfast and telling her, well, okay, well, now we got to figure out what we're going to do with you. But Jenny, knowing what she knows and where she's come from, is concerned about, as Mo's alluded to, Toby. Yeah, I, I really, really, really hated the storyline. Like deeply hated it. It the Toby storyline. Yeah, just all of it. It makes little to no sense. Um, things that should have pretty heavy ramifications are brushed aside. 
Um, also, where the hell is Alice? Yeah. I want Alice. Like, the way, like, I don't want to skip ahead too far, but the way it's eventually resolved is just so asinine that I just rolled my eyes. Hmm. Yeah, I was curious about how your guys' reaction to that was going to be, in that if there is a gaping hole in these last two episodes, I felt like there, there was something no something that was missing that maybe I didn't see, and I didn't know if it was a Netflix thing, but it feels like there's some some sort of connective tissue that I that should have been seen between, um, well, you have Toby, Frank, and this this connective tissue between Frank and Luther and something just like and and Frank's conversation with Toby of like you know you can't do this to this uh to Luther he's he's not he's over a barrel you don't really have a thumb over him and there's a difference between him on a hook and him over a barrel Right. Well, yeah. Frank himself was a dirty cop, right? I mean, that's that's where Frank came into the picture, is he was or he's a former a, an officer. Yeah, right. but yeah. they do say dirty, officer. so you are correct in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did like, that was the one line I liked. He's not a dirty cop. He's over a barrel. You have to treat them differently. Right. And and I'm with you, Moe, in that this kind of comes out of left field. Um, and I think they do their best to try and fill in why. I mean, Frank, as we find out, doesn't have a whole lot of respect for Toby and Toby being a guy who is ready to go off at a moment's notice. I mean, he's drinking, he's shoving stuff up his nose. He's, you know, he's a guy who thinks that everything bends to him because of his position, because of his grandmother, who's really the head of that whole outfit, but he's going off the reservation and doing his own thing. To quote the poet, Lady Gaga, he's a paper gangster. (laughs) I and, and speaking of which, I think this is the part that th- th- this is the the main impetus on the on the B plot, which is I don't I don't know if I completely understood what it is that they needed Luther to get from Shank's office. What they needed was is that Toby has competition for his enterprise, and he knows the police have dirt on him, and he wants Luther to get it. Yeah, he and wants. John is saying, "Look, it's going to take me time. I've got other stuff going on, and Toby won't hear any of it. And he uses Jenny as leverage to get what he wants." Yeah, uh, it was the Armenian crime families. They wanted to know the extent of their operations, what intel the police had on them, that sort of stuff. Okay. And and this is where it's starting to come to roost because Frank was trying to tell him that if you push too hard, he's going to start pushing back. You you don't own him. You are intimidating him and that's only going to go so far and and that's a great segue into how i kind of felt about the b plot in these episodes whereas i had issues in the a in the previous two episodes because i didn't feel like the re- luther's reactions were true to the character at least while I, they had gaping holes in what was going on i at least felt in these two episodes that that luther reacted as luther you know there was there was some retaliation there was some mechanisms that he was trying to do to to move himself out of that situation whereas in the first two episodes he was very passive and just kind of rolled with it yeah i could see that and also if we understand if we flip back to where john was at the beginning of season two you know where he's a guy who's still trying to figure out really what he's capable of doing after everything that happened in season one 
and he's made it, these lines of demarcation for himself of, you know, I'm I'm a cop. This is what I do, but I'm not going to go and do this behind the scenes backdoor getting my hands dirty stuff anymore because this is where it's led me and it's cost me. And he, you know, now that he's stuck in this position of, well, if I don't do this, something's going to happen to Jenny. And there's clearly a, a a paternal concern there, uh, more so than an emotional or uh, uh, a uh, non-platonic one, because that would just be ick. that kind of forces his hand to go, okay, well, now I'm going to have to go back and start doing this again, which ties us into the very small C-plot that happens over these two episodes, which is the ideological clash between John and DCI Gray, who... Boy, she has just enough pressure, just enough pressure to make things interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so I kind of felt that they're trying to have it both ways with Jenny and Gray kind of being like counterbalances to Alice. And I kind of feel that's why they didn't bring Alice into these last two episodes to give Jenny more room to breathe and to give uh to give DCI or DS Gray like less threat. Right? Because if she had been pushing on John and Alice found out, then Alice would be pushing on her, right? Mm-hmm. Um so it's kind of one of those situations where, they're like, you know, if you think about all of Batman's stories, they could easily be resolved by Superman, so he just can't be there. Right. Right. And and the C-plot in this is really the one that irked me the most, because Grey seems too one-dimensional to me, in that it's all about her ambitions and her career, and she is so... Everything is so black and white for her in regards to how John operates. And Ripley, as we find out over the course of these two episodes, he's got to be the intermediary between the two. And he, of everybody, with the exception maybe of Shank, knows John well enough to understand his methodology for everything he does. And we actually start to see that seep into how he does things later on, but how... He's got to be the gray suit between John's black hat and Gray's seemingly white hat. But there are points here where I'm looking at how Gray's going about it. And I'm like, if you think even two or three degrees outside of your this fixation you have with everything has to be exactly above board and everything's got to be completely that way, then you'll see understand John better. But she's she won't have any of it. So. Something I really, really like. So this B plot, I've made no secret of the fact that it irks me to no end. Uh, I think you made that clear at the outset, yeah. Um, and for me, like from minute one, when they when they pulled, when they kind of you know told John to to uh, you know work for them, like threatened him. I feel the natural reaction to John with where he is would be go to go to Snack and work it together. Yeah, right? I because can see that. Before he crossed the line of doing anything wrong, they could have turned it into a trap pretty easily, right? Um, and given how he's Snake has behaved, like he would be willing to work with John on that, right? And he's just the sort of he he is Snake is the predator who hunts predators, right? He is the exact sort of person you'd want to help you on this, right? 
And especially when it came time to sneak stuff off of his computer. I keep calling him Snake of Shank. Um, he should have just came to him and laid it out, and it probably would have worked out. Yeah, it, it may have, because you know, Shank has shown that you know he trusts Luther pretty much almost implicitly at this point, as we saw at the end of how the the A plot wrapped up. He's he just let him, you know, if you got a plan, do it. I mean, he, he's let him place had carte blanche, so I mean, he he trusts him implicitly. So, yeah, I mean, the, to your point, there might have been, you know, he, he he might have gone along with it if he had been you know upfront with him about it. Yeah, I could see that because conversely, though. Shank made it very clear at the start of this season of how hard he fought to get John back in. And as we saw in season one with Teller, John, his way of doing things, it seems designed around making sure that the only person that any blowback would land on is on him. And I think because there's enough respect there between him and Shank. Yeah, I I totally get your point, Sean, and that he could go to him and they could probably orchestrate a way to resolve this whole thing. And but John being it, John, that wouldn't that's not his way. Think about it this way also. Jenny and her mom become CIs automatically and they could be put into protective custody. Mm. Right? See, like I mean it just makes sense on so many levels. Yeah. It just doesn't There's something about Jenny's mom that just grabs me wrong. Like her yeah. her methodology is she does she want revenge on John? Is that it? She is, that was something I it took a while to figure out too, where, I mean, she goes to John first because Toby and his grandmother needed an in-man to get what they wanted. So right. she helped set him up, and again, they used Jenny as leverage against her. But she's opportunistic enough that she, if she can get back at John for what happened with her husband and all that crap that, that went on previously, and stick it to him, it seems like she's going to do that. And if she has to put Jenny in jeopardy or make her feel less than what she is in the process, then she doesn't care. You know, as long as she gets what she wants and is happy with what what the appear- what the appearances are to everybody around her, that she's got her shit together and that she's just, that fits her, the image she has in her mind, then she'll do whatever she wants to. She's very scheming that way, and it makes her just as oily as Toby is, really, to me. Yeah, Eric, Although what were you thinking? Although she did care enough about her daughter, at least, to not have Frank like rough her up or whatever. She's like, you know, just just talk to her, and that's all. You, you know, that's all you're going to do. You know, I'll, I'll rip your balls off, or whatever she said. Yeah, to the yeah, yeah. Right. So that, at least comes... she cares about her daughter, but she's still not still not opposed to selling out anybody around her to get what she wants. Right, but that does come after she is very manipulative and very, very ascetic to Jenny earlier in this in the episode. So why don't we bounce back really quick to the A plot because we've got after the ferocity of this opening scene, we get a bit of a lull where Robert walks into a bodega and just rips the owner off. I mean, he takes some candy bars and kind of knocks some stuff off the shelves, but there's that moment, which we had in the, in the, the first crime at the gas station where he just walks up to the guy and he's just that stare. Yeah. That stare is so creepy. And, and with the way that Ripley and Luther and Benny hit, we're trying to figure out what is the motivation behind all this stuff. Was it because you see, 
you don't see what is spray painted on the roof of the fir- of the car in the opening. It's implied, and they kind of give you an idea of what it is, but until they figure it out, they're thinking, is this racially motivated somehow? And the man who's running the bodega is, is a man of, of minority background. He's not a prototypical white well, and both English both man. both convenience stores are run by you know an Indian of some sort from India, yes. right? But there's so, that point where he walks up and he just stares at the bodega owner, and you know what he's got in the bag, and instead of going after him, he just turns and walks out. After again, he knocks some stuff off the shelves, but he just leaves. So I think this is one of those instances where. British sensibilities and American sensibilities are just just different enough that the true impact of this scene is kind of lost. Because Brits put up, like, in general British culture, you put a pretty heavy, like, the normal order of things, the social norms, you know, standing in line, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, mm-hmm. And the utter disregard he's showing for social norms. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned this. I had a roommate in college um, that used to do these kind of goofs. And basically, without saying it, he would, he would kind of explain to me, he's like, watch what I'm going to do right now and watch how people behave. And he would do things overtly. And it was amazing to me to see how people didn't react or how they reacted in a very passive, passive way. One example is this. I hated going, it was like Christmas time. We were walking through Walmart. And he said, watch this. And he, it, was, it was super packed in there. And he would do, he would keep both of his arms straight down and just walk straight into crowds, like, like as if no one was there, bumping into them and whatnot. But his arms always stayed downward. Instead of a normal walk, you know, you're, you have a gait to yourself, right? But he would keep his arms down and people would either do one of two things. They, he would, when he would knock into them, they, they would look, and then they would immediately turn away. Or he would be walking with, and walking with a little bit ahead of steam to just to break the crowd up. And they would immediately, like, it, it, was, it was like, uh, like watching some, some you know, under, underwater in a school of fish, just completely break away from him, only because... He would put this blank stare on and keep his arms straight down. It was the weirdest thing. But like that that moment where you see this this attendant, like not really, he doesn't say, hey, what are you doing? Stop that. You know, that face puts on the intimidation factor first. And it's kind of like, well, what, what can I do? Well, and and I if, think- you, if you refer back to the first crime, you know, he, 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 can, he attacked the guys, but only after they confronted him. Yeah, so it makes you wonder if the bodega owner had actually made any kind of effort to stop him. Oh, it might have good been call! But because he just passively stood there, he was not an opponent, <clears throat> and therefore could not be in the game. So you're saying predator syndrome? Mm-hmm. Um, something I just kind of thought of is this kind of hits the same place that the Uncanny Valley hits, where okay. you know where. Like, our eyes and our senses tell us this is a human, but every other instinct screams that this is not a human. This situation is wrong. It's incorrect. Yeah, it's like, this is fundamentally wrong. Um, Like, 
like the, the uncanny valley. You're all familiar with that sure, ph- uh, sure. phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is coming from kind of that same instinctual place. It's like this is something that does not compute. Yeah, and for me, what doesn't compute about Robert is in this whole scene, I don't think he blinks once. And there is something very unnerving when you see somebody staring at you and they don't blink. You know, I mean, we had the whole thing in in the first episode of Luther with Alice when he figured out she was a narcissist because she didn't yawn. Well, that's one thing. But when you have a guy who's standing there and he just walks up to you and he just glares into you and he doesn't blink, you start wondering. It's like, okay, I know this is a human being I'm st- who's standing across from me, but what the hell is going on? What is up with this guy? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and he never even says a word until like the second episode. So you, right. you know, he, 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 he doesn't talk. He, he has no expressions. He's just like a robot. He's just like a, an android. Uh, like, yeah. No exp- and... and- Correct me if I'm wrong. The first thing he says is Nicholas because Luther says Nick. They figure, you know, he figures out that he's got a twin, but he corrects him. He does. He's not exactly talking to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cannot abide rule breaking. Yeah, no. And so we go from the bodega to. Okay, you think all right? He got nothing messy happened here, but you know something's coming. And instead, he just goes out and stomps on a bunch of cars and puts another bedlam axis on the top of one of them. You know, to most writers, I would think you want to keep that tension going and you want to keep the idea of uncertainty. And because we've got the understanding from Benny's breakdown of what is happening, that everything's coming down to a roll of a dice where, okay, it's not just some creation of chaos for chaos's sake but the dice is dictating to him okay you're just going to create some havoc you're just going to create some mayhem you don't have to kill anybody here or you don't have to really screw anybody up just go out and wreak havoc for a little bit and that'll get you the points you want to keep going on you know the fact that they were able to put this kind of lull in there ramps up what comes after this for me and makes it even more shocking when we finally get to Prime 4 in the office building as he's dressed up as the courier. Yeah, and again, um, it like especially when he's dressed up as the courier, there you go again, of subverting the mechanism of society, right? Um, you know, couriers are people, they're kind of, you know, we're, they're programmed to be like just trusted and admitted, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And he's he's... He's breaking <clears throat> fundamental trusts is what he's doing. And it makes people like, you know, the human social animal makes them very afraid. It's like we, we allow certain things based upon the uh, visual cue. It's like, oh, pizza delivery boy or security agent, you know, or like security guard. These are people that are allowed access. And, you know, we're going to step step away from. Uh, you know, the armored car carrier, that kind of thing. You know, we're, we just have kind of been ingrained in some sort of subtle way, but you can subvert that uh, if, you know, you're playing a game and no one else isn't. Yeah. yeah for and, less- and, and when he, after he jumps the courier and takes the motorbike and shows up at the office building, that point where he just, he gets off the bike and just lets the bike drop 
and everybody stops and looks at him like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. what, what What am I missing here? But his his blatant, as, as Sean pointed out, the blatant disregard for social norm. Just, he's so in his own world in all that he's trying to do. But there's no logic to it, and there's no... There's no communication of it is is what makes this this episode so impactful for me is just the idea that he's not saying anything. He's not like the Joker who goes out and blatantly advertises everything and says, hey, this is what I'm going to do, Batman. Come stop me. You know, so- Luther and Ripley and Gray and Benny, their only guess to shake is how are we going to catch this guy is we really just have to figure out if something sounds so out of the ordinary that it's got to be this guy. So I'm going to actually say that the scary thing about this is the fact that there is logic behind it. It's just alien logic. Yes. Um, And I would say, like, going back to my Joker comparison, it's because Joker's playing a different game, but he's still playing a game. Mm -hmm. Right? So the rules of Joker's game are different than the rules of Roger's game. But it's still they're still adhering to their game. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally makes sense. And to to those of us, I mean, I've been playing role-playing games and video games and stuff. I'm a first-generation gamer, you know. But even to me, the idea of and I remember in in high school, we played a a LARP game called because it was what it was called, called Killer, where Everybody was, everything was clandestine, and me and my friends, we all had this thing where we were we were doing this at high school. Show you how different a time it was. And... Uh, was it with dark guns? Well, you could use dark guns, or you could use, like, pieces of paper if you could slip it into somebody's locker, and if it opened it up and said, boom, that meant you were gone. I mean, it was nothing near on the level of what this is, but... Those sorts of games exist, and to anybody who is on the outside who doesn't understand gaming culture and doesn't understand what sort of things are available to people who play these sorts of games, oh yeah, it'd blow their freaking mind to have them sit there and go, you're playing a game that does what? Yeah, there was pictures in our yearbook and with captions of of that of that game. They But they used dart guns, and basically everybody got a piece of paper of who's going to be the killer. And then no one else knew who the killer was, but they all had these, um, you know, suction cup dart guns. Yeah. So, so speaking as a second generation gamer who grew up in Kansas post satanic panic, I always get annoyed whenever anybody de- uh, demonizes D and D because I had to put up with that a lot. Oh, me too. Pisses me off to no end. I mean, I had pe- I had somebody, and I. I had somebody my junior year in high school come up to me out of the blue, never knew her, never met her, nothing. Came up to me and proclaimed me in front of everybody in the cafeteria to be Satan himself <laughs> because I played Magic the Gathering with my friends during lunch. Wow. And this was a year after it came out. And her introduction to me was, oh, you're playing that satanic card game. Now, I me act- being 16 years old, 16, 17 years old, and not really suffering fools well even back then, I gave her what for in the most snarkiest way I could. But that carried on for weeks. So, 
you, you reminded me of a hilarious similar incident where um, a similar thing happened to me um, for for exactly the same game. And uh, but I happened to be an Orthodox altar boy <laughs> at the time. That had to have gone over well. So I, I just calmly, and also being a Simpsons fan, I just calmly reach into my backpack, pull out a copy of the Bible, tear a page out, eat it, and go, sacrilegious. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> That's slightly better than what I did, because what I did was I took a card out of the box and handed it to her, and I said, can you tell me what this card says, please? She's like, I don't need to know. I'm like, just tell me what it says. Upper left-hand corner, there's the name of it. Said wrath of God, and I stood up and I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, this fine young woman pointed out that because I'm wasting my time playing a card game, that I am Satan, but because it has God in it, that inherently makes God evil." Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your lunch. Three weeks worth- later, she accused me of saying that I needed to go see a therapist, and I'm like, "Really? <laughs> okay." Yeah, yeah so- that's done. That's done. Silence was worth. <laughs> was worth. It. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. The reaction I got from that was, was phenomenal. So anyway, speaking of how things get misconstrued very, very easily, while all this is going on, you know, John is on the clock to get his information back to Toby, and he figures out the only way he's got to do it is he's got to pull a fire drill. And as we alluded to, he goes into Shank's office, gets the information he needs, but because Gray has been appointed to be the point person for the fire drills, uh, she comes back in and finds Shank's door locked, and it wasn't locked before. Then when she goes back out, John slips out with the info he needs, and she comes back in, and the door's open. Now, this whole sequence to me seemed very, very clunky. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of, like, wait a minute, that's a one-way mirror, he's looking right at her, and then... She sees him put the document in his desk, but as he pans up with his head, he doesn't see her. It was just strange. Like, but I, I, I got the the uh, the intention. It was just really weird. Like, how are you not seeing this person at this point? Because the script said so. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. had to go for that. This is this, this, whole... is this your typical, you know. Will she see him? Will he see her? Ooh, what's, you know, it's like, no. no. But at least, she, you know, they get the idea that they both probably knew what was going on, but they, you know, they didn't really see each other. Right. And, and when, because the way it was shot, you see, as Mo said, there's the one-way mirror in the door. But if she turns the corner, those aren't one-way mirrors in Shank's office. Right. Those are simple glass <clears throat> windows with one set of blinds pulled down. It, it wouldn't have taken a DS officer much to go yeah let me turn let me just let me look, look down around there. the corner yeah you know uh, as you know that that was this point where i think the script was too convenient to what they were trying to do and that builds her suspicion which i get that 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 does a great job of of, of building building this case between her and luther however i want to go over to the end real quick briefly to where Gray is talking to whom? Is she a plant, like an uh, internal affairs plant? And if so, wouldn't have made sense to build that in earlier so we knew that she was definitely uh, hunting the hunter? I think what she is, is I think she's just the station commander. 
where she's not like above Shank, but she's just like the administrator for that building. Okay. Um, but they're she's again. The- you, you're right, Mose. They're very, very, very vague about it. She's the Tarkin to uh, Shank's Vader. Yeah, that's okay. how I took it. So she, and, and Gray being who she is, with everything being you know cut and dry, just went up the food chain, and I think she figured she couldn't go to Shank. Also, the fact that Shank is a man and the the commander is a female, I think she played her cards and went, well, if I go to her, I'm going to get seen as more sympathetic than if I go to Shank, who's obviously going to try and cover for Luther. But by going to her instead of Shank, is she implying Shank is complicit and trying to cast him in the Ooh. same light? I don't think so. I think it's it's her focus is clearly on John, but I think it was more it would have suited her means to getting what she wanted going the way she did as opposed to going to Shank. Yeah, I thought she kind of went maybe to, to Ripley first to kind of say, like, you know, what, what's he doing or is it, what's going on? You know, can you help or talk to him, whatever? And say, yeah, sure, whatever. No, you're and maybe, right. And, and maybe she, she thought that she didn't that he didn't really do anything. She's like, okay, well, screw that. Then I'm going up the normal chain of command and and go right to the you know IA and say, hey, here's what's going on. You know, I think you know this. You know. Well, Eric, no, you're, you're right because they had that conversation between Gray and Ripley, and like, I will help you get. You know, like, just don't go outside the norm. Come to me first, and because Ripley kind of didn't give her what she thought she deserved or what she needed, then it was a case of, I don't, I don't my hands are tied now. But as yeah, by the I, book and black and white as, as gray is supposed to, ah, gray, black and white, is, is supposed to be, <laughs> you know, it, it seems that she should have, in her mind, followed the actual legitimate chain of command. And she didn't. She yes. bypassed Shank and went above him. Right. It's actually not uncommon in these sorts of organizations when you have ethics allegations to go to a uh, orthogonal commander. That's actually pretty standard. Oh, no. And no, in in any system like that, there has to be checks and balances uh, stacked on checks and balances stacked on checks and balances. But as as Eric alluded to, you know, Justin makes it, lays it out when he tells Aaron, you know, there's a big difference between getting your hands dirty and being dirty. And her response to that is just, well, there's loyalty and there's naivety. Like, she thinks she knows more than Ripley does. And because Justin has documented his loyalty to John, she even pokes at him saying, you know, oh, so you went to talk to him and then you rolled over and showed him your tummy so he'd rub it. So you're his lapdog, basically. And she's very, very patronizing to Justin. Well, in all fairness, he did. He did sink a police operation to save him. No, he did. So and got and got reprimanded severely for it. So I mean, it's not it's not baseless. No, it, it it's not undeserved. But I think the the way that Ripley's relationship with John is is established by this point, and as it's going to be going forward in these two episodes, you know, Justin has the the trump card of being able to say i understand john better than you do i know why he does these things i know what he's willing to do to do these things and it doesn't make him dirty it's because john is the only person who can look at this and see the shades of gray that you refuse to acknowledge because you think everything is this or that and you think everything has to be done this way otherwise we're not doing our job and it can't be as simple as just doing everything above board sometimes whether you like it or not 
have to get your hands dirty. John will do that. Doesn't make it right, but it doesn't make him dirty. I should say, um, I would say it doesn't make it legal. Like, Shank trusts John to do what is right. Mm. Right? Going back, going back to the D&D, right? Shank understands that John is true good and not lawful good. Right. And, and Shank, of course, made it very clear with John. No secrets, no agendas. Of course, no Alice, and we don't have to worry about that in these two episodes. But, you know, John still has to go and do what he needs to to help Jenny out. And Jenny is trying to do what she can. I mean, he, she does what John asks. She goes to look into jobs, but she strikes out. It happens. Not much you can do about it. And... You know, she's starting to, I think, feel it a little bit. So what does she do? She tries to reach out to the only person that she can really connect to, and that's Caroline, her mom. And they meet while Toby is getting coked out of his tree and trying to get a hold of John and is pissed off that he can't get what he wants now because he wants it now because he's a coke freak and he's out of his fucking mind. And while that's happening, Jenny meets Caroline in a church of all places. And this scene, I think, really outlines Caroline enough that we start to see where Jen realizes that the only person that she's got that she can really, really, really trust in all of this is John. Did Did you guys come up with a similar? Yeah, when idea when, when Caroline, yeah, when Caroline snapped off at her, that was. I mean, you could see it in Jenny's face, like, oh, now I know that. Yes, you are my mother, but you're willing to go to lengths that, that I don't, and this is, this is a good man. And you're just, he may have destroyed your husband, my father, but there must've been, you know, that at the end of the day, my father wasn't a good man. He is a good man. And in all fairness, John didn't kill her father. Right. Her father killed her father. John exposed him on some, uh, what, did he, he killed a prostitute? Yeah, killed a couple of them. I mean, her dad did some really heinous crap, and it obviously impacted Jenny, but, you know, it, it, with Caroline, it also shattered her, again, her illusion of what her life was supposed to be. And she holds that against John. Yeah, because being raised by a prostitute murderer is obviously better. Oh, yeah. Loads better. Is sure. it? Is this how Toby finds her? I think uh, what a, Toby think, finds her at John's apartment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He Toby just happens to go to because he's looking for John, and she yeah. happens to be there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and again, this is pretty clunky how it was all done, but when she leaves her mom at the church. Um, you know, and it's that, as you pointed out, it's that bit where she hands her the money and Jenny says she doesn't want it, but her mom snaps right back as, oh, well, if it was an old guy with an erection, you'd take it, wouldn't you? And, I mean, she doesn't physically do it, but you can see the slap across Jenny's mm-hmm. face when that happened. Yeah. So naturally, you want to try and, and do something nice for the guy who actually cares about you. So, and... and to play off of what happened in season one, what does she do? She comes home with a picture of David Bowie and puts it on the wall. Um, and that's when Toby shows up. And, you know, we 
we're able to get the resolution to both of these at the end of this first episode where even though we get the the sheer brutality of that attack at the office you know luther and ripley and gray show up and they find out that while it looks like robert got away turns out he didn't and this smack back to episode one of this season where when ripley and luther are showing up after cameron kills one of the his victims and john looks over and finds that pell is still standing there kind of taking it all in it's slightly different in that robert has to try and find a way out and realizes he's stuck but Luther and Ripley are able to pick him out of the crowd and get him apprehended, but he still doesn't say anything. If anything, yeah, I, what he does is he grabs his phone and makes a call, but he still won't say anything. I like that the effect of him holding the bloody rag up to his face and walking around with it, and as soon as he knows he's caught, he just lowers it, and of course there's not a mark on him. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. It's well yeah, shot. So, so at this point, we figure, okay, this is over and done, even though there are multiple people dead and several people wounded, and it's going to be one that people are going to be talking about a long time. So John goes home and finds Toby dead on the floor with a steak knife sticking out of his the back of his neck, and Jenny, understandably, quite distraught about it. Um, You know, this ends with a couple of different twists, and the biggest twist comes a couple of minutes later, but... You know, with how Toby shows up at John's apartment and understanding that, of course, he is completely inebriated and high strung, thinks that he owns Jenny and can do what he wants. The reality that Jenny is able to fight him off and stick him right square in the back of the head with a steak knife. I mean, that's not easy to do. I mean, how did you guys take how, how this part of it all got resolved? Live like a chump, go down like a chump. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of figured that's how it would end. As soon as he walked in that front door, I'm like, well, you know, I think she's probably going to wind up killing him. And then that's what wound up happening. Mm-hmm. I was amazed well, at, her, I, at her cleaning skills. Yeah and, yeah, and to go to the end of the episode, you know, again, we get that nice little montage musical riff. And you, we get another Marilyn Manson song for a little Punisher carryover. But... Um, yeah, I, I just really enjoyed the way they, they finished that out and kind of set up the next episode as we roll straight into it. So Right, and and what a role we get, because the twist in all this, as we've touched on a little bit, is that there is not one of these men, there are two of them. Yeah, and, and it took, took me a second to even put that together, because like when I first saw it, I was thinking flashback, not... Uh... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And I just thought of this. Is there is there any way... We would have known through uh, episode three that we were not watching Nicholas or Robert in any of those. No, I mean, because yeah, they're dressed don't... the same. And again, they don't say anything. There's nothing. Right. There's no verbal way to differentiate Nicholas from Robert. Yeah, for all we know, uh, Nicholas was at the store and Robert was at the gas station or vice versa. So, yeah. I mean, it, and, and it throws you off a little bit trying to figure out, okay, what do we have? But that point where 
you know, where he's standing there, or he's kneeling in the train station and lays out all the same stuff, the bat, the hammer, the knife, the squirt gun, in a crowded train station in the middle of London, and nobody stopped to look down and go, all right, that's a bit fucked up. Yeah, What the yeah. hell is he doing? But, but, but they don't, you don't want to see that. Like, if you were in that situation, yes, you might look at it. It seems odd, but I, I can see where people are like, well, this isn't my business. I'll keep walking. Yeah, and, I mean, they don't know the squirt gun's filled with acid. There's nothing inherent. Like, I mean, yes, those could all be used as weapons, but those are not, uh... No, those the, are not. The one thing yeah. that would really get your get your ears perked up would be the knife. Right. Yeah, but otherwise, if, you, just, if, you know, you're, you're in a large town, so it's another weird guy doing weird things in a big city. Okay, whatever, move along. Yes, and that plays very much to, to what Moe's alluded to, the idea that we... As human beings in a quote civilized society, our capacity to tune all that out, even as we're staring it right in the face, going, "Okay, that's weird," but I'm not going to let that stop me from doing whatever it is I'm doing here. Your I think it's a little instantly just block it out and go, "Oh, okay." I think it's a little bit more than that. I think people tend to use themselves as frames of reference. Yeah. Right. So, like, I wouldn't be preparing to, you know, do horrible things with these things. So, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't... If you wouldn't do it, it doesn't line up. I, I, is that where you're going? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and also, you know, again, as, as as Sean said earlier, if he reached into his bag and pulled out a semi-automatic rifle, everybody would know what that is. You know, it wouldn't take two seconds for people to freak out and go, oh, crap. But because they're not using things that we associate with with mass carnage nowadays, that it's just a bat and a hammer and a knife, and that that you don't make that connection of something really sick and twisted is about to happen. And as the second episode opens, it's in progress. I mean, we open with a foot chase going through the train station at high speed with a guy chasing Nicholas we, when we know what he's got on him. But that's not stopping this guy from saying, hey, I'm going to get you, and he ends up getting got. You know, that was a really, that was a uh, the complete opposite of the slow pot boiler opening in episode three. Yeah. This was kinetic, hyperactive, just let's go. Yeah, and I think it's because they realized they couldn't, they couldn't go back to that well a second time. No. No, I agree with you on that. You know, the, the, for lack of a better term, the die had been cast. So while they're going, you, it's, it's balls to the wall now. Um, and the one benefit that they get out of this, even though Robert gets, or Nicholas gets away, is in the pursuit, he, his wallet falls out of his jacket or somewhere. Which you could look and say, okay, yes, very convenient plot device. But that's not something that is so egregious to me i mean that happened you know when you're running at high speed you don't pay attention to to something that's gonna i lost my cell phone that way once trying to get a bus you know you just take off it was nestled in my pocket and the next thing i know i watched it go down yeah. a storm drain so it's convenient sure was it blatantly over the top and in, in low-hanging fruit no not really not to me well yeah, and, and the thing is that didn't it, even yeah, it only gave us one piece of information that was a really a needle in the haystack. Mm-hmm, right. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, because they, they had no ID, basically, to, like no like, a driver's license, social security card, or national ID card, whatever. It was just you know a key card to, like the one I think Gray said. So it's just you know it could be any one of yeah. who knows how many hotels. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and, and yeah, it wasn't the skeleton key that they needed. But this is the point where we finally get the understanding of how this scoring system works, and Shanks trying to get an understanding of all this. And one of the things I do like about about Luther and especially again these two episodes is is how you know everybody around John and around Shank I mean they're more culturally adverse to things like this or they're more in the know on this stuff and it kind of plays back to uh in season one where Ripley was kind of ribbing John a bit about his David Bowie fandom and when he says I'll make you a tape and Ripley's like a tape like how old are you mm-hmm. you know and and it gives the supporting characters a chance to kind of fill in those gaps and, and develop those characters a bit. But when Shank looks at him and says, okay, so these guys are playing a game where if they get enough points, they're going to level up. So now they can start using what guns, bombs, whatever you start seeing the, the end game potentially in sight here. And it does, it left me kind of chilled going, Oh yeah, this we're not even nearly to the point where things can get really out. Is this this is when Luther Luther doesn't I, I'm I'm blending the two together, but Luther is in the interrogation room with Robert. And at yes. that point he's now rolling the dice in front of him. And yeah. this is where I watched Robert's face go from that stoic blank to every time he rolled, there was there he was he was emoting a little something. He was trying to hold it back, but like it was almost like well, there was the the first roll, and you could see his fingers fidget. His yeah, his thumb was twitching on his yeah. hand, like he was counting off. Going, yeah. What what does that mean? What sh- what could I be doing right now based upon that roll? And I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. That that the as Luther's just using these these dice a, as an effect, he's actually seeing him kind of break a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and and. The fa- yeah, and as um, as Sean pointed out, the first word we get out of him, yeah, is is Nicholas. It's not anything other than it's a correction. And John, to that point, even points out to him, saying, you know, I've never seen anybody take their right to silence so seriously. Mm-hmm. And again, Robert, he, he's so just dead. I mean, he, he doesn't blank, doesn't emote anything. And that is so antithetical to what we are used to seeing in antagonists in crime procedure where they've got to be more Joker-esque. They've got to be over the top. They've got to be charismatic, got to be flamboyant. And he's just stone until they figure out who his brother is and who he is. And I think it's because, you know, most, most of these murderers in, in the end, or after some sort of recognition or attention, right? So they kind of have an inherent need to talk, to mm. connect, right? And that is, again, this is why this is not just this is not just evil. It's alien, and that's what makes it scary, right? Because he's not playing by any of the rules. Like he, he is not in any way the typical monster. No, no, absolutely and, not. And this is the point where I think I'm going to ask the question because I think I missed something. Is how did they figure out it was a book code as for the cipher and not anything else? Why did, how did they settle on book? 
Betty was going through it and and they figured out a couple of consistencies in the scorebook. And I think that's how they kind of determined how what they needed the password from. And in order to do that, it looked like it resembled something out of what you would get out of a book code. So um, to expand on that, so my formal education and training was actually as a cryptographer. Um, it's it's pretty easy. Just there are well known techniques to decipher like if it's a repeating code or if it's a non repeating code or if it's a one time pad. So that's that's pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. And okay. when they get to the hotel room and there's just this collection of random books. And and you know you see Ripley looking at it going oh shit how are yeah we that's it's out? totally overwhelming I felt the same way I was like yeah. this is ridiculous this will never right. happen but John brings up a good point of okay if you need the exact <clears throat> book and he just starts grabbing books off the shelf he's like this is like a three dollar book where you're gonna get an exact copy of this I mean you know grabbing one, and they had one that had the Bedlam Axis on it which was the symbology that they were spray painting on the on the cars and everything um. And when they, I admit, when they went and grabbed the Gideon's Bible, I was like, well, it worked for the first Mission Impossible movie, so of course it's going to work here. You know, that that was one where it was more convenient to me than the fact that in order to figure out who Robert and Nicholas were, they started with a, a wallet falling out of Nicholas's jacket. Yeah, I was thinking just, just to keep with a and d kind of theme, like, oh, look, the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, you know. Yeah. So at this point, Justin gets a chance to ask John, you know, did you get your other thing taken care of? And John says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working it out. And, you know, as Mo said, you know, Jenny, she's got good cleaning skills, but she's trying to get everything squared away back at the flat. And John has her move Toby's Porsche to a point where they won't be able to track it down. And, if you're a car nut at all, this is an uncomfortable scene to watch because that poor gearbox on that Porsche gets shredded in order to get it away from from the house. Yeah, uh, that's pretty flat. much my, my my stick shift skills right there on on scene. Yeah, I, it's the funny thing about that. Is I'm currently in the process of teaching my my son how to drive, and that's kind of what I was flashing back to. Just seeing the, the the gear process there, it was it was it was heartbreaking. Well, and the, and the other thing is like <clears throat> like I drive stick. And then I'm and Luther's telling her, don't get pulled, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, geez, you're, you're sending her really into the lion's den because she stalled upon get go. And I'm thinking, boy, this is just not going to go well. And, and how far do you drive out? How far is she's 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 part of a darker world, you know, the world of of, you know, getting yours. But she doesn't know about ditching cars. No, does and, she? And in, a, and in a city with that much CCTV footage and the surveillance net, how long would it take for somebody goes, um, we got somebody who's driving a car that does not know what they're doing. We should probably send a couple of bobbies over to check. And this is kind of where I was rolling my eyes, the second hardest of this entire thing. <laughs> um. Because that scene he walked in, he walked into with Jenny and Toby, is the definition of justifiable. Yeah, I would think I, so too. A little slip of a girl, a grown man, obvious signs of a struggle. <clears throat> right, like that would. 
I mean, but why well, is she there, so. Sean? That like that. If I'm going to yeah. play the role of Shank, why why is this girl here with you? Well, and less than that, uh, it's not it's not the police that they're worried about at that point. It's the organization, and they're it's Toby's grandmother. Right. I was uh, I was sad that I was part of her father's death, and I'm trying to set her straight and give her some assistance would be a pretty reasonable explanation for why she was there. Right. And I think what John's explanation to her of, of you know, the first thing he says is, look, this was self-defense, clearly. You know, he knows. But the problem, the the thing he's worried about now is getting caught, and it's not... I agree. It's not with Shank and it's not with his fellow police officers. It's with Frank and it's with Toby's grandmother. Mm-hmm. And sure, but at, at this point, he's committing, like, up until now, like, he could quote unquote, quote unquote, have come back from the, the things he has done. Right? Yeah. And now he's doing something. Now he, he is responding by doing something that they would never be able to. Uh, for, like there, there's no coming back from that if he's ever caught. Well, you know and I mean? especially like, once he rolls up the body and puts it on a roof. Yeah, th- that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. right at that point, he's like, there isn't no amount of shank is going to save him at that point. Right, and and that is <laughs> no amount of shank. <laughs> well played, and I think that also plays into how they follow this up with when he goes to meet Frank, who's hitting golf balls in the dead of winter. Why? Because it's Britain. It's what you do. Uh, and even, um, and, and even Frank says, you know, Hey, this is what you're supposed to do when you get old, I guess. Uh, and John tells him, he says, you know, where's your pet? And Frank's like, he didn't show. No, he didn't show. And he starts planting the seeds of Toby went rogue, which he did anyway. And, but John did what Toby wanted. So he's covering his own butt and he's covering Jenny's butt and and trying to start planting the seeds of like you gotta get a you gotta get control of your boy because this yeah. is not gonna end well for anybody. And Frank agrees because he's already had that conversation with Toby and he knows how unhinged he was. So he's using that to his advantage to be able to help get out of the situation. Yeah, and I think John understood Frank and Toby well enough to understood that understand that uh Frank thinks Toby's a little shit and you know. Yeah, I mean he says you know, kids an embarrassment, what can I say? But in order to start getting it and Frank goes to the flat to try and see if there's any sign of Toby and finds the carpet's still a little squishy. And even though John told her to get rid of the bucket, the bucket's right there. And it's like, uh oh. Yeah, so, I thought we were fairly doomed right there. Yeah, and when John goes back to the apartment and Frank meets him down at the bottom and checks his trunk, you know, the way that was done, I did like how that was constructed where it seemed like John didn't have an out on that because everything led you to believe that Toby's in the trunk. Yeah. And when he pops it open and says, no, it's my riot gear and everything, he opens it up, looks at it, and says, well, crap. And when John finally leaves after telling him, you know, get your boy, give him a slap for his grand and give him a slap for me. Frank's like, well, shit, I don't know what to do. You know, something's yeah, well, I, up, I, but I can't put two and two together because everything I've seen, it tells me that it's not John didn't do it. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I guess retirement's kind of dulled Frank's instinct because I knew right away the body's in your trunk, Frank. You're an idiot. 
<laughs> go, go check your trunk, dude. I'm glad you knew that because I like I thought I know what this scene is trying to construct, but the 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 way in which it was edited, like I just I, I was I was at a loss of who was where and when and but and you know and it worked for what it was supposed to be. It was just the I felt like I was in spy game, but except there were the sequences were just off just that little bit. And I realized that that confusion is probably uh, you could say that was the plan for the audience not to really know where things are. But then, yeah, Jason's just like, oh, yeah, yeah there. Check so, yours. So part of this in my mind is that Frank is not fond of John, but part the part of his soul that's still a police officer um, realizes that they forced him into a situation that he took up willingly. And like that Frank took up willingly and they're forcing John into this and kind of has the inclination to give John the benefit of the doubt. Mm, mm. Because, he, you know, from obvious guilt, he feels. Well, also just the ethics of it. You know, as John, as he pointed out, you know, he's a guy over a barrel, so you handle it differently. He understands there's a different set of rules for for this as opposed to dealing with somebody like Frank or if Ian Reed was still alive doing the same thing, you know, you you can handle it differently because they've already they've they've sold their soul off. John has it. So you have to treat it with a different pair of gloves. Toby doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care about that. But I think in that regard, Frank can empathize enough with John to say, okay, well, John's doing what he was asked to do. So I'm not going to harass him on it. He's, you know, it's Toby's a little shit. Let him deal with it. And it's also a bit of like people like who are over a barrel, right? You can only push them to the point where they're until the, their conscious no longer outweighs the, their fear, right? So mm-hmm. once they become more angry or indignant or self righteous and they are afraid, you lose you lose leverage, right? They right. Can, you can only push so far, and Frank understands this, right? Like, yeah, you know, John's going along with it, but as long as they don't. He might go along with getting information here, talking to someone there, but he's not going to push him too far, and he's not going to do it. Yeah, it's, 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 right. it's like if I have enough to – if I have the, the thought process that I have something to lose, then I will stay up on the barrel. The moment you, moment you take things away and I don't have anything to lose, now you're fucked. Or the moment you're asking me to do something that's yeah. worth more than losing it. Right, right. Now, to this point, there hadn't been any mention outside of the first episode with with Mark, who uh, is also no longer involved in the series. He just kind of went off into the background, and that was it uh, after episode two. But he goes and picks Jenny up, and uh, John does. And, you know, they kind of have a little discussion, and Jenny says, you know, you're a nice guy. Why aren't you married? Mm. You know, you should be married. and you know all of John's background. You know everything about Zoe, and you even know everything about Alice and their relationship. And that point where he just just lays it out there and just says, you know what? No one will have me. And you just see the look on Jenny's face of, I don't, I don't get it. You know, why are you so terrible? And she can't see that because John has done all this to help her. But and also let's give let's let's take a second and look at uh Jenny's uh standards for comparison. 
Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it I think to to but I like the fact that there was just that very brief conversation of of you should have a better life than this for what you do for people like me and John understands the consequences of what that costs him. And I don't know. I just, I, I like that little interlude. It doesn't, and I don't think it played out any longer than it had to, but it gives you such an understanding of the emotional weight that John still carries for everything that's happened before and everything that's coming down the road. And Jenny decides that, okay, well, or, or when John tells her you need to lay low, the only place that she knows of that she can feel remotely safe, even though she knows what she's walking into is to go back home to her mom. So we leave her there and John has to go back and find out that there's been another attack. And this one, in a lot of ways, threw me off even more than the office building one day because it happens out of nowhere. And and one more point about Jenny. Let's not forget, she's 18. Mm-hmm. I, she's not, I mean, technically she's an adult, but only by the barest sense of right, the word, right? right? She's right. not. Yeah, she's not a little girl. <clears throat> I mean, her sliding scale she, is skewed. Yeah, but she's also still a teenager. Still, yeah, not exactly the wisest person on the planet. No, she she's still developing into into who she'll eventually be. But you know, because we're, we're starting to run short on time here, we should get to this this last big crime or this big attack where Nicholas is walking along on a rainy day in London because those things never happen, and he's just walking by traffic and stops backs up looks in a minivan and then goes to work and the visceralness of this one was so i mean this exemplified the chaos aspect of this for me again even more so than the office attack did or the one at the the petrol station at the beginning where he just opens the door and just starts Waylaying people. I mean, how did how did you guys take? It? Yeah, I think this was the more disturbing of the of the crimes to me, I guess, because I'm just picturing like you know, like a soccer mom or you know a football mom over there, and like her kids in the car. He just jumps in there and starts killing little kids and her and whatever. You and know. we don't see everybody who's in the van. Either. Yeah, we we have no idea, but that, that's my impression. Is like minivan. You know, I, I thought you know, oh, like soccer mom, you know, driving somewhere. You know. For me, I think by this point, I was just kind of sensitized to it. I was just like, okay. But we also have this is a situation where there was no confrontation. There was there was no <clears> opponent. <throat> you know, it was it was his initiation. He just immediately attacked. And, and that's mm. different from and, the first couple attacks where we were actually, yeah. nothing happened until he was confronted. I, I took this to or be that he had leveled up. Yes. Oh. That he, because yeah. later he comes out with the bomb, which is a more advanced weapon. So I, 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 I took that to mean that he had leveled up and he's doing it, you know. Or this is what gets thing. him to level up. It's just the sporadic, all right, I'm just going to jump into a van and kill a bunch. Of and yeah, well, that, it's up. almost like he's cheating the game a little bit. Like, if, mm-hmm. if it or, is a competition between he and his brother, he's like, okay, I can ramp this up quickly. I, I mean, I, again, this is implicit, not explicit. I think the limitation, like, I think there was a limitation when you are, say, level one, that you can only do this to people you get to confront you. And then as you hit level two, 
you can just start racking up the points at a willy-nilly. Yeah, although Moe's has a good point because this gives us a conversation with Ripley, Luther, and Robert in the interrogation room. And I like that Justin was in on it. You know, to this point, Justin's been, he's been the tech dog. He's been the guy who's been filling in the blanks as we go. But here, we get to see Ripley and Luther play off each other against Robert. And I liked that interplay a lot, where Ripley's starting to kind of explain things and saying, you know, well, here, this is the point of why he's doing this. And Luther's going, oh, yeah, right, I get this. Okay, I understand what you're doing here. And they're starting to tag team up on Robert because they got to figure out what the hell Nicholas is doing. And that it comes down to a roll of the dice to see if Robert's going to help him. I loved that. Because it came out of nowhere. Yeah. And his logic, as twisted as it is, if in the in the sense of the game itself makes sense. It's it's a straight 50-50. I roll 1 to 10, I tell you where he is. 11 to 20, you're on your own. And Nicholas and, looks at, or, and, and Ripley looks at Luther, and Luther looks at Ripley and goes, well, what the hell else are we going to do to stop? And I like that they lost. Yes. Yeah. Which sets up the very end game because this this be, this becomes the uh, the the uh, Chekhov's dice. Mm-hmm. And that the one way you can you can subvert these guys is to decide to play the game with them. Yeah, it, it's the antithesis of war games of where I was in that, about the, to only say winning, that. <laughs> the only winning move was not to play. Right. The only winning move in this one is to play the game out. And and, and I'll say that and this was the scene to to, to quote Sean here. This is where my eyes rolled so hard they hurt because the 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 ga- dousing yourself in gasoline all in your face all in your eyes it, it was it was a poor effect in my opinion because there was you, you can't do that and not have any painful re- repercussions you know he oh no he might as well or passing out all over himself yeah, yeah and not I, to mention just... not to mention how this plays out and he still didn't get lit on fire yeah yeah I mean for the context of this. You know, it it all comes down to Nicholas versus John, where John realizes that his only play here is to say, okay, if you're going to level up, and if your way of doing it is by wearing a bomb vest that can take out anybody within 100 feet, and you have Shanks saying, okay, well, what's the casualties going to be? And you have the SWAT guys saying, well, it's going to be bad either way. You know, my job is to try and minimize it as much as I can, which is very much in that mode of, of can, you know, collateral damage containment minimizing as much as you can but you know shank looks at john and says you know i I don't have any play here so if you've got an idea you're you gotta go so go do it and john said okay and he shows up meets nicholas in the middle of the street and john's got a gas can now it's not a huge gas can you know it holds a couple you know maybe a gallon of fuel in it but what does he do? He takes the top off and starts dousing himself with it. Now, well, he also he also says, you know, if you really want to level up, you'll need a boss. Yeah, right? yep. Yeah. And, and John's the boss. And before he douses himself, he flips a lighter to Nicholas. And Nicholas, we should note, has a switch in his hand that if he lets it go, it's called the dead man switch. If he lets it go, the bomb drops, which means. They can't kill him because as soon as his hand comes off the, the trigger, everybody gets blown up. So they got to find another way. And yeah, I'm with I'm with you guys. You know, I, I remember enough from my chemistry classes in school to know that if you douse yourself with, alcohol, with gasoline, gasoline is a very 
caustic chemical uh and it's gonna leave a mark on your skin and if you've got it coming down your face and everything that's gonna burn like you wouldn't believe and, and you're not gonna do big ignited. In, yeah big uh in breaths uh and inhales that's you're you're just that's not gonna feel good no because it's gonna sear your lungs yeah and i like how when you know nicholas looks at him and says you know are you serious and john's like do you see what I just did? Yeah. Do you think I'd be joking with you if I, I didn't, you know, if I wasn't serious about this? And they end up going in the back of a, a freight truck, and that's where they have it out. Now, my content, my my real bone to pick with that, that scene, as much as I liked it, was at the very end when it comes down to, you know, it, again, it comes down to the roll of a dice, and John says, okay, if I guess the number, I win. If not then it's on you. And he convinces Nicholas in order, because he's got it in one hand, he's got the switch. And in the other hand, he's got the lighter and his die. Mm -hmm. And he understands like, well, you can't do both. Even though all he would have to do is just take the lighter, put it in his pocket and roll the dice and not take his hand off the switch. Um, I was like, well, yeah, that wouldn't be hard. Um, Or you just roll the die with the, you know, holding the lighter with one finger. Um, but either way, he puts the switch, he puts the lock back in the switch, rolls the die, and flicks the lighter open and lights it. And I'm thinking with all the fumes in there, yes. as he's emptied the gas can over his head, that whole truck would have gone right. So I actually kind of like this, going back to my theme of people people use, use themselves as a frame of reference, right? To Nicholas... Breaking the rules of the game is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And therefore, because he's his own frame of reference, um, he, it doesn't occur to him to think along those lines that John may be breaking the game. Mm-hmm. No. And, and if anything, this shows the influence, although she's not here, of Alice. Of what did John do? What is Change Alice always telling John? Change the state of play. Yeah. You know, and, and there, this this does mirror, and and if we if we you know we looked at you know like the mirroring of of episodes and using dice. Uh, how did we start this series with John almost killing himself? So you know at what lengths he really life death. What does it matter? Because yeah, you know he he's already he been playing the game, that to Nicholas. Yeah, you know he touches on that. He explains that to Nicholas. Of, you know, hey, I used, to, you know, I was playing Russian roulette not too long, ago, you know, and and understanding how things come down to fate and, and just random chance, and it's not that simple. There, there's more to it. And when Nicholas asks him, you know, are you scared? John goes, No, I'm not scared. Are you scared? And 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 Nicholas showing how different he is than Robert. I mean, he's, he's euphoric. I mean, he's laughing, he's chuckling, he's like, wow, I can't believe, you know, this is, you know, forget how the game was before, this takes it to a completely another notch. Yeah, yeah. And, and, my, and I'm, I agree with Sean, I like the tension in this scene, the tension is amped up and paced really, really well. I really did like that. And when you get the guess, and John tells, you know, when he just says, you know, okay, here's my guess. The A between the L and the R, aim low. 
and mm-hmm. Nicholas just what? And you get the order, and all of a sudden bullets just come blasted in through the side of the truck, and, and down he goes. And, and if you think aside, about that, that worked for me. I, I enjoyed that. That should have exploded the van. <laughs> Yeah, if you yeah. think like all, all sparks from bullets, you know, hundred bullets <laughs> flying through the thing should have, but it was still cool. You know, you, you have to give yeah. that. So. It was yeah. cool, and I like how Shank when he sent, you know, he sent, uh, he basically gave John free reign. It's kind of like uh, Apple in 1997 when they brought uh, Steve Jobs back. He's like, "There's no way you can fuck this up worse." So, mm-hmm. right. We, yeah, we already so know I that mean, this has this has the 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 element of maximum carnage. If we let it play out. We at least have responders on the scene, right? Yeah, yeah and, 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 and maybe maybe being inside that container will at least contain some of the explosions. So at least it's not quite a win-win, but I guess as close as you're going to get, right? Right, and again, that plays back to when John was talking with the SWAT commander, saying, "You know, look, there are thousands of people. Here. You know, you're just going to let them walk down the street and just go off and and blow countless people up." And the SWAT commander says, look, trying to figure out a way to minimize that in, in, in a form that I can sleep at night with, that's my job. Your job is to figure out how to stop him. You know, the, the, the lines of demarcation are drawn very, very plain <clears throat> between both aspects of, of what their view on how to resolve the situation is, which is where Shank tells John, okay, it's on you, man. Go do it. Yeah. And this, you know, and it, you know this is the whole thing with, you know— you know, there's an element, or you get the feeling of I, I want Luther to be as real as possible. I want this all to to all make sense. And at the same time, I was just thinking, ah, doggone it! Sean said the whole Batman thing in 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 motion, and so there are things that I am willing to just allow to happen as a very fantastic uh, ending to his cases. Yeah. Yeah, it, because if it had just been a, I mean, if you think about it, if if Nicholas's case had ended the same way Roberts did, where they just found him and he put his hands up and they arrested him, what what kind of a payoff? Yeah, You're, it's a payoff absolutely. in that regard because it leads to chapter two where Nicholas is more. I mean, which is crazy to think so, but he, I mean, he's even more unhinged than his twin brother. Is. So you think, okay, the carnage got this far and we stopped it. Now it's going even crazier. And we don't know how to stop. Oh my gosh. Wait a minute. So based upon my idea of who we are seeing and when, when the crimes are being committed, I wonder if the ones that were non-lethal and non-violent was Robert. Robert. That's an interesting bit of headcanon to try and figure out. You know, I, I... I envy, or I don't envy you because I think you're going to sprain your mind in trying to piece it all together. Right. But, but no, that's an interesting thread to go through. And, you know, to wrap up, because we, we've kind of gotten, aside from the last little bit of plot we need to sort out, you know, one of the things that they ended up needing to do to track Nicholas down was manipulation of media. You know, they used the media to be able to play up to get Nicholas's attention. And, of course, who's the person that doesn't like it is D.S. Gray. And when Ripley, she goes to Ripley about it, and he flat out says, can you think of a better way to get this guy nabbed than what we're doing? If you can think of one, let us know. But if you can't, then essentially shut up and get out of the way, because we got a job to do. And 
that plays to Gray's distrust of everybody around her to when she finally goes to the station commander and says, you know, I caught John doing this in Shank's office, hacking the computer. Clearly, he's got to be dirty. And then she gets called in the office and finds out, um, no, there was nothing there. And rather than just go storming back out of the office, we have that slight moment where Gray, who's clearly been accosted by the station commander for what the hell are you doing? We got that two minute bit where she goes outside and she loses. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of you to take a shot at the King. You best not miss. Right. Very much so. And then when she comes back in, she takes her shot and she goes to Luther first, and Luther's like, what? What are you talking about? And naturally, she looks at Benny and goes, you know, did you do it? And Benny, Benny being Benny, you know, I'm sorry, you had me lost at hello. I, I'm, I'm with him. And it certainly well, couldn't you- be the puppy. No, but she looks at the puppy, and Ripley looks back at her, and he doesn't say a word. And you can just see in that instance that, oh, oh, you little bastard. You know, she is, she, you know that Justin Ripley just made a big time enemy in DS Aaron Gray. And, you know, the quote she uses, I'm not sure where she got it from, but how, you know, the creatures outside look from pig to man and man to pig, and still it was impossible to tell which was which. That's, and that's the end of Animal Farm. Okay. Ah. I had a feeling that's what it was. And all three of the guys are looking at each other going, you know, you know what that was about? No, you no. Okay, well let's go back to work. And then specifically, Justin... that's the. I was gonna say specifically, that's the actual uh, ending where the the pigs and man are, are playing cards, and the animals can't tell because the pigs have become the overseers. The pigs have become equal and evil to the man. Ah, okay. Yeah, thinly veiled critique of uh, early Stalinist regime after the Tsar. Hmm. You know, and then we get we get that bit where Justin st- is in the car with Luther and tell and cops declaring the computer off. And you know, there's that little look from Idris Elba over to him where I think it, it's registering in John's mind just how much Ripley, how much he's rubbing off on on Ripley. And Ripley's trying to rationalize it, saying, "Look, I got to make this right. I got to make this right." And John says, "Yeah, you do got to make it right." But there's that unspoken acknowledgement between the two of them of, you know, I got your back, you got my back. And this, yeah, this is, starts with Ian. It's, it's, it's that idea of favoritism and, and doing favors that are, are very much in the, in, in the gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, think- I, I like the scene, you know, that, you know, that shows that how, you know, much, you know, they, they both like, each, you know, will do, it, do whatever they want, to, you know, do whatever they can for each other to, you know, keep them from getting caught or from, you know, just making a bad situation worse. But as an IT professional, I, I can kind of ignore a lot of things on TV but with computers, but no. I, I don't think Justin's, like, the IT professional is going to spoof the IT department at a, at a police station. Well, and he logged in. I mean, you can't scrub a login. Right. Yeah, I mean, that was, that's another one of those things that, that as we've alluded to at other points in this series, in season one of where Neil Cross, I think his, his acumen is not as sharp as some of his audiences, but 
in in the spirit of of what he's trying to do you know the suspension of disbelief holds up just enough but i mean i, I obviously for somebody like eric who who knows the nuts and bolts of all that it's like pff, come on well yeah. and ultimately i think at the end of this we're trying to see that luther is luther we know is a good man but now he has kind of maybe um a reason to live uh with him and jenny and him getting her ice cream kind of panning off from there and pulling out you know we're left with luther as the guy who now has something to live for and where do we go from here i still have dark dark ties but some of them have been cinched up right and 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 also with with justin from where they were especially in the in the first two episodes in this season where you understand just how much john comes to not just rely on ripley but also to genuinely care about it and understanding that that relationship works both ways as a true partnership would and and i really i i did appreciate that that they were able to give justin that little bit of of development as a character not necessarily in a good way but at least enough to that it it fits with him and also his his conflict with it of okay i got to make this right and can we get to the resolution of the b plot yeah because honestly honest to god i'm going to get my canadian girlfriend to murder you that is his that's his out yeah i know I'm a a large, imposing man with access to weapons, but it's going to be my imaginary girlfriend who kills you. Get you with an Alice bomb. She she has no reason. I mean, even Jenny didn't buy she existed. No, but if you look at the conviction in John's, the way John lays it out for for Toby's grandmother of, you know, if anything happens to me, anything happens to her, she's going to come down on you with the wrath of God. She's going to take everything you loved and she's going to make you regret the fact that you ever crossed. And when you lay something like that out for somebody, if you call bullshit on it and you're wrong, and the fact that we all know that Alice exists and we know what she's capable of and we know how... she doesn't. No. Well, my my head canon on this is that that she does. Um, At least pull the Breaking Bad trick. What's the Breaking Bad trick? Where they had the people with laser pointers uh, make it look like they were targeting them with laser sights. Ah. Okay. Yeah, although I, I can kind of buy it since, I mean, you know, apparently he's taken out her, her grandson and her hired gun, so maybe I shouldn't mess with them anymore. And, you know, okay, okay, fine. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a draw. We'll both walk away. I right, just didn't because... see it was Alice at first. Like, they were, he was, you know, describing the threat level, and I didn't. It just for whatever reason, I, I maybe I was too obtuse. I just didn't understand that he was bringing in Alice, and it right, should yeah, have yeah. made sense to me. But like, it's only till now where it's like, okay, I, I, you know, and at the very end of it all, see, and, and yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. it was the absence of Alice is more frightening than Alice being like right there at his shoulder, because again, we know what Alice is capable of. And we know what she'd be willing to do for John. So all John has to do is just say, hey, have, do you know my friend Alice? Because she knows about you. Yeah. And all I have to do is say the word and you'll know about Alice. And it's not going to end well. 
You know? I just thought it was weak as hell. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen Alice come back or at least be here for, for part of these two episodes. And again, I don't know why Ruth Wilson wasn't involved in him. It may have been related to another project or whatever, but regardless, she wasn't there. But also, I don't know how much Alice could have really helped in, as far as the A-plot goes. Because, again, she's already... She's taught John what what he needs to know to have resolved all that stuff out. As we said, he changed the state of play. Yeah, but at least if Alice was an active chaos agent for the B-plot, mm-hmm. and John can say, I'm the only one holding her back. Mm. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I, and I think because we're all as partial to Alice as we are, that having tried to, to fit her in some other way would have been great. I, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, I think for, for what we ended up getting, though, I, I did like that her, even though she was absent, she was not, there was no real void of her being there when he brings her back around at the end and says, you know, you'll probably see Alice again. Uh, yeah, series so. three? We'll have to find yeah, they out. Were fighting, they were fighting character overload hard. You know, they were trying to, to keep it from being too many people on the screen at, at you know in short time spans that's the only reason right. i could think of so yeah i did like and, how it, it it was a very mundane ending with with just john and jenny sitting down having an ice cream cone in the dead of winter but it ends with the same line that ends season one when jenny asks it instead of john so now what so i hope to god they have long-term plans for uh ds gray hmm Okay, because what, right what would now you like to see her do? Anything. Because remove her from the season entirely. What changes? Uh, I thought about this too. You, it, she adds a certain seasoning and pressure to Luther, but it's not as overt as I would have liked. I would have liked her... her well... In fact, Justin says, don't go to him and just, you know, bull, you know, go head to head with him. Now we have potentially in a season three, maybe she gloves come off and she does tries to go head to head with him. And, and mm. that's what I'm saying. Like, I, like if this is build up for a confrontation later, then, then great. Fine. Right. Because she is young and inexperienced and she is taking her lumps. But if she just drops off the planet. Right. Yeah, and while well, while then, I completely agree with Sean on that, I, I definitely want to see it and hope it has a, a bigger thing. I, I will also say it gave us a lot of the relationship development between Luther and, and Justin, right? I mean that that was a lot of what in these two episodes what we got between them was related to the C plot. But yeah, yeah I agree. It sh- it needs it needs to pay off. It needs to have something more than just that little bit. Right. The the curious thing I'm going to have and and what I hadn't really thought about until now was is through most of this series, Gray has tried to be the new Shank. And and not necessarily deliberately, but, but just the way her her ideology is. But Shank, being who he is and being the more much more experienced officer as well as understanding John well enough, you know, they couldn't be more opposites really. But Gray was trying to fill that role and trying to keep John in check. Whereas Shank, especially as we found out at the end of this one, is free to let him off the leash when the 
the the purpose is right. Mm-hmm. So now will be I will be curious to see what happens in season three when if we see Aaron Gray again in what capacity and how her storyline will carry on. Yeah, I'm totally with you guys. Any other predictions for things you would like to see in season three? Aside, obviously, from more Alice. So, right now, just going back to the D&D thing, I see Alice as chaotic good, in a weird way. Um, John as true good, Shank as lawful good, Gray as uh, lawful neutral. <laughs> just a thought occurred to me. Oh, see, I'd, I'd okay. flip that. I'd say Shank is is lawful neutral and and Gray is lawful good, but no. But Shank's willing to give John leeway in the purpose of achieving good. He he isn't rules as rules as rules. All he's not Rorschach, right? Okay. Well, and because season one ended on the way it did, and we had season two start with everybody with the band being put back together, but everybody kind of being taken down a peg, you know. I, it doesn't look like that we're going to see a repeat of that going into season three. So where where would you like to see John at? I mean, obviously he's the focal point of all this, and we've seen him go through his dark times in this season. He's you know he's acknowledged that he has something to live for, as we alluded to. You know, what would you like to see? How would you like to see John evolve going forward? John's got to find so, love. So I think I would like it to see like season three starts maybe a year or two later, and John's kept his nose clean. And been like, he's he's going to be tested by being given leeway to see. You know what I mean? Like, he the the gaze of Sauron has come off of him, and he's more free to act. And if that will be what tests him, if he does goes back to season one, John, or if he finds a better way. Okay. Anybody else? Well, yeah, I know I he's already we'll said a little more. Um, Alice, you know, is kind of a given. But specifically, I'll, I'll limit that down and say that I look forward to seeing um, her reaction to Jenny and how Jenny's become a part of John's life and just kind of how that relationship's going to change with that change in picture. I, I already imagine Alice calling Jenny his pet. Mm. <laughs> Eric, yeah, what were you going to say? I, I'll say, I, I kind of see that, yeah, like John's going to get his life back together. Maybe he's going to get into some relationship with you know somebody or whatever. but. There's gonna be something that's gonna like shatter that. I don't know if it's gonna be <clears> season three or season four, mm-hmm. but for for some reason they, they kind of teased it the last time. But I, I think Ripley's not gonna make it through the entire series. Ooh. And here's another thing: if John and Jenny start a romantic relationship, I may rage quit the show. Okay. But I could see Jenny and Ripley together. Hmm. Yeah, although they did mention that in season two, there was a bit when they were tr- when they were looking for him that that Ripley is thirty two. He's he looks like a puppy, but in reality, he's not a puppy. So um, that would be a, a considerable age gap. But no, I, I I'm with you on that. Anybody thinking that you know if Alice comes back, we we might see the development of their relationship go to the next step. I don't think that they're allowed to do that. Now, knowing that I've seen Series 3, there are things that I don't remember. There are things that I do remember. And so I don't want to speculate, but I find it very interesting. Everything everyone has speculated on 
Yeah, me too. And and I've seen season three enough that I know where every everybody's guesses. I already know the answers. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not saying a damn thing. So <laughs> I'm just taking what you guys have and saying, okay, all right, well, we'll find out. So on that note, how about we close the casebook on season two of Luther? Uh, it's been a fun ride. I hope everybody's enjoyed playing along with us on that. We will be back in a couple of weeks for season three. Uh, and again, we're building this all up because the newest season of Luther, season five, uh, comes out later on this year. So if you have any uh, questions, suggestions, comments, feel free to drop us a line at theincomparable.com. Uh, of course, I want to thank everybody here, all the Broken Boys, for jo- coming together again. Eric Scott, Jason Johnson, Sean Shibley, Philip Moselak, and I've been your Sherpa on this quest, Devin Higgins, and we will talk to you again down the line. Been fun, guys. Bye. Stop.